Chapter Five, Part Two of Twenty Years of the Republic, eighteen eighty-five to nineteen hundred five, by Harry Thurston Peck. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Presidency of Benjamin Harrison, Part Two. The news of this disaster dispelled all thoughts of war in Germany and in the United States. Prince Bismarck proposed a conference at Berlin to deal with the Samoan situation he was confident that he could win by his strenuous diplomacy what he had failed to gain by bluster and a show of force he felt perhaps that his personal presence and the greatness of his fame would overawe the untrained american commissioners as it had invariably overawed the skilled diplomatists of europe he had dealt with americans before in eighteen eighty three a minister of the united states at berlin mr a s sargent had displeased him by one of his dispatches bismarck therefore ordered the officials at the foreign office to speak only german to mr sargent whenever he called as mr sargent spoke nothing but english he was placed in a very humiliating position and for a whole year was obliged to transact all his official business through a secretary of legation during mr cleveland's administration germans naturalized in the united states were expelled from germany with only twenty-four hours notice mr bayard had tried to resent this breach of amity and of treaty rights but he had proved to be no match for bismarck on the whole then the chancellor felt quite easy in his mind the conference began on april twenty ninth eighteen eighty nine the united states was represented by mr j a casson mr william walter phelps and mr g h bates mr bates having already visited samoa and made himself familiar with the conditions there prince bismarck's object was to make a treaty which should recognize the political predominance of germany in samoa after he had set forth his views the american commissioners opposed them absolutely they insisted that the united states great britain and germany should share alike and that the rights of each should be recognized as equal bismarck was a great actor he could assume at will a tremendous indignation and work himself into a rage which his huge bulk of body made really awe-inspiring he now resorted to this device and frowned portentously as he growled out sentences that seemed full of menace the americans were thoroughly impressed by his manner and they cabled to secretary blaine informing him that the chancellor was very irritable mr blaine at once flashed back the terse reply the extent of the chancellor's irritability is not the measure of american rights note thirteen page one eighty eight this message so stiffened the backbone of the american commissioners that they held to their point with unyielding pertinacity their british colleagues heartened by their example united in supporting the american position bismarck found that he could accomplish nothing either by threatenings or by cajolery and at last the man of blood and iron backed down squarely and conceded every point Malietoa, whom the germans had seized and exiled was restored as king of samoa a general act was signed under which the three powers established a condominium in the islands note fourteen page one eighty nine this was the first diplomatic reverse which bismarck had encountered in all his great career and he had met it at the hands of the united states it was a signal triumph for mr blaine and for the nation the incident made a profound impression in europe and most of all in england the london saturday review an organ usually known for its hostility to everything american summed up the events in samoa and then added it has been left for the navyless american republic to give us a lead in the path of duty and of honour taken by itself this samoan affair was but a trifling incident and might well be chronicled in a single paragraph 
but in the light of subsequent events its ultimate significance is seen to have been very great first of all it revealed to the american people their need of a more powerful navy and congress soon after provided the sum of twenty-five million dollars for the building of new ships a sum which was presently augmented by a further appropriation of sixteen million five hundred thousand by the end of the year eighteen ninety the united states had under construction five battleships of the first class an armored cruiser and an armored ram besides ten steel cruisers and six vessels intended for coast defence another and very far-reaching result was found in the growth among official germans of an intense animosity toward the united states for having at every move of the samoan game thwarted and humiliated germany this feeling grew with the lapse of time and nine years later in another island of the sea it was destined once more to drive the two nations to the very brink of war note fifteen page one ninety even more impressive was the samoan episode as the revelation of a new temper in the people of the united states this has been well described by mr john bassett moore in the following words the chief historical significance of the samoan incident lies less in the disposition ultimately made of the islands than in the assertion by the united states not merely of a willingness but even of a right to take part in determining the fate of a remote and semi-barbarous people whose possessions lay far outside the traditional sphere of american political interests the tendency thus exhibited though to a certain extent novel was by no means inexplicable the intense absorption of the people of the united states in domestic affairs which resulted from the civil war and the struggle for reconstruction had ceased the old issues were no longer interesting the national energy and sense of power sought employment in other fields the desire for a vigorous foreign policy though it jarred with tradition had spread and become popular note sixteen page one ninety mr blaine was less successful in his attempt to establish for the united states the claim that bering sea was practically a mare clausum the object of this claim was to secure to american sealers the sole right to take seals in bering sea seal catching was immensely profitable and was engaged in by russians canadians and americans these sealers made their catches in so indiscriminate a manner killing alike the females and the males as to make it probable that before many years all seals would be exterminated the cleveland administration had tried to establish american jurisdiction over bering sea and had seized several british sealing vessels in the open waters these vessels were subsequently released but the whole question still remained unsettled when mr blaine began a correspondence with lord salisbury in support of the american claim in this correspondence it must be said that the american secretary did not appear to the best advantage the traditions of diplomacy require the tone of all formal communications to be ceremonious and courtly to the last degree however burning the question at issue may appear the diplomatic duellists must everywhere observe the most punctilious etiquette and never either in word or phrase overstep the limits of a stately self-restraint these traditions lord salisbury on his side followed absolutely his immensely able argument was couched throughout in terms of the finest courtesy suggesting in every line the urbanity and graceful deference which marks the intercourse of high-bred gentlemen mr blaine's dispatches on the contrary however plausible were marked at times by a certain swagger a tone of lurking insolence and an offensive assumption that his opponent's argument was one of conscious duplicity and falsehood note seventeen page one ninety one this perhaps was due to the fact that in his heart of hearts mr blaine was quite aware of the weakness of his case 
certain it is that he accomplished nothing and at last he betook himself from diplomacy to methods based on force instructions were issued to american revenue cutters to capture british sealing vessels even when found in open waters the british minister at washington had once informed his government and immediately lord salisbury dispatched a vigorous protest june fourteenth eighteen ninety which ended in the following very ominous words the undersigned is instructed formally to protest against such interference and to declare that her britannic majesty's government must hold the government of the united states responsible for the consequences that may ensue from acts which are contrary to the established principles of international law what this really meant was that if american cruisers should molest british vessels in bering sea outside of the three-mile limit british ships of war would forcibly resist them the gravity of the crisis was sufficiently apparent and mr blaine though he seems to have weighed the question of war and peace decided presently for peace in a very characteristic private note to the president march sixth eighteen ninety one he said if we get up a war cry and send navy vessels to bering sea it will re-elect lord salisbury england has always sustained an administration with the prospect of war pending lord salisbury would dissolve parliament instantly if we made a demonstration of war on the other side i am not sure or rather i am sure that war would prove of no advantage to you new york and massachusetts are steadily against war with england unless the last point of honour requires it again i think you will bitterly disappoint lord salisbury by keeping quiet we should have all the fuss and there would be no war after all not a man in a million believes we should ultimately have war note eighteen page one ninety two the whole question was subsequently referred to arbitration a mixed tribunal met in paris in eighteen ninety three and decided that the american case was defective and it was therefore lost upon every legal point involved the final decision held that the united states have no right to protection of or property in the seals frequenting the islands of the united states in the bering sea when the same are found outside the ordinary three-mile limit while secretary blaine was confronting bismarck president harrison was busying himself with the much less noble task of parceling out the offices the significant sentence in his inaugural which declared that honourable party service should not be a disqualification for appointment had been accepted by party workers as a special invitation these now descended upon the capital and overwhelmed the president with their importunities questions of petty patronage occupied his entire time and they seem moreover to have greatly interested him his activities for several months were those of an office broker and the spectacle was not altogether edifying he observed the civil service law as it stood upon the books and within the range of the classified service no changes were made from partisan motives but elsewhere what was practically a clean sweep was carried out it cannot be said that the result strengthened mr harrison even with his own party since for every office-seeker who was gratified by an appointment at least three or four expectant ones were disappointed while the majority of the people viewed this office-mongering with something like contempt it will be remembered that according to senator sherman note nineteen page one ninety three mr harrison had received the republican nomination as the result of a bargain with mr t c platt of new york it was reported that mr platt had been promised the secretaryship of the treasury if such a bargain had actually been made it was undoubtedly made without mr harrison's consent for platt was not appointed nevertheless to console him he was allowed to have a large share of federal patronage 
and the same concession was made to mr key of pennsylvania president harrison likewise looked very carefully after the interests of his own relatives offices were given by him to his father-in-law to his son's father-in-law to his daughter's brother-in-law to his own brother and to several of his son's college chums he also brought upon himself much criticism by bestowing important places on the editors of newspapers which had supported him in the late campaign mr whitelaw reed of the new york tribune received the mission to france mr thorndyke rice who as editor of the north american review had published an outrageously personal attack upon mr bayard was made minister to russia mr anander a chicago editor became minister to denmark an oshkosh editor received the peruvian mission and an indianapolis editor to english consul generalship one j s clarkson editor of the iowa state register was allowed to distribute the fourth-class postmasterships the editor of the utica herald became assistant united states treasurer at new york mr robert p porter of the new york press was appointed head of the census bureau mr porter was an englishman by birth a free trader who had with suspicious suddenness become a convert to protectionism one of these appointments fell through it was that of mr murat halstead of the cincinnati commercial gazette to be minister to germany mr halstead was rejected by the senate for an interesting reason during the cleveland administration the ohio legislature had elected as united states senator mr henry b payne a warm friend of the standard oil company note twenty page one ninety five subsequent investigation showed that mr payne's election had been due to the most barefaced bribery another ohio legislature secured the necessary evidence of this fact and forwarded it to washington accompanied by a resolution asking the senate to investigate the case of mr payne with a view to unseating him senatorial courtesy was held to demand that mr payne himself should welcome such an investigation and should ask for it as an honourable man might have been expected to do but mr payne held his tongue and though lashed by senator hoare with indignant sarcasm he said no word the senate therefore declined to investigate the matter note twenty one page one ninety five mr halstead in his newspaper had declared that this refusal was due to improper influences and the senate now took its revenge by rejecting the editor's nomination all these circumstances the attempt to subsidize the press the wanamaker affair the partisan removals and appointments the affiliation of the president with such men as platt and key and the proofs of a petty nepotism excited throughout the country a feeling of disgust which found expression in a most unexpected place on april twenty ninth and the two following days there was celebrated in new york city the one hundredth anniversary of the first inauguration of president washington the details of the old-time ceremonies were carefully reproduced like washington president harrison was entertained by the governor of new jersey and then proceeded to elizabethport whence he was conveyed by water to the foot of wall street landing at the very place where washington had disembarked a hundred years before a squadron of warships thundered a salute as the president came ashore there were given two public receptions and in the evening a gala ball on the thirtieth the president was escorted as washington had been to st paul's church where in the pew which washington had occupied he listened to a religious service conducted by the bishop of new york the right reverend h c potter when the bishop entered the pulpit in which bishop provost had preached before washington the presidential party settled themselves down comfortably expecting to hear a polished historical address lightened here and there by a few graceful compliments to washington's successor 
it came to them with something of a shock when the bishop far from pronouncing a bland discourse replete with pleasant things spoke out with something of the fire of an ancient prophet in words that burned he contrasted the simplicity integrity and honour of george washington and of the nation's founders with the vulgar display the self-seeking and the shamelessness of men in high places at the end of a hundred years the growth of wealth the prevalence of luxury the massing of large material forces which by their very existence are a standing menace to the freedom and integrity of the individual the infinite swagger of our american speech and manners mistaking bigness for greatness and sadly confounding gain and godliness all this makes it impossible to reproduce to-day either the temper or the conduct of our fathers and then the bishop spoke two sentences which struck home the conception of the national government as a huge machine existing mainly for the purpose of rewarding partisan service this is a conception so alien to the character and conduct of washington and his associates that it seems grotesque even to speak of it it would be interesting to imagine the first president of the united states confronted with someone who had ventured to approach him upon the basis of what are now commonly known as practical politics note twenty two page one ninety seven this sermon caused a great sensation throughout the country some said that the bishop was guilty of bad taste in choosing an occasion such as this for a rebuke so pointed and so personal others said that the whole discourse was on the very highest plane and that the bishop had shown himself a true priest of god speaking out boldly the lesson which the hour and the place demanded and undeterred from his duty by these considerations which too often influence the time-serving and timid ecclesiastic certain it is that his words were caught up and repeated all over the land and that they voiced the sentiment of millions when congress met on december third the president's message took up the question of the surplus in the treasury at the end of the cleveland administration this had amounted to very nearly ninety seven million dollars and as mr harrison had pointed out it was more likely in the ordinary course of events to increase rather than to diminish he recommended therefore a revision of the tariff and the removal of the internal tax upon tobacco congress however in both houses of which the republicans had a working majority took a very cheerful view of the surplus holding in the naive words of colonel frederick grant that a surplus is easier to handle than a deficit the senators and representatives felt that if the surplus in the treasury proved embarrassing the easiest and simplest way to reduce that surplus was to spend it hence congress promptly passed the dependent pension bill which president cleveland had vetoed at once the number of pensioners rose from about three hundred and fifty thousand to nearly five hundred and fifty thousand and steadily increased until ten years later it had reached one million while the yearly payments grew from sixty five million dollars to one hundred fifty million dollars representing pretty nearly half the entire annual budget of the united states note twenty three page one ninety eight heavy appropriations were made for the navy and for an exposition in chicago to celebrate the four hundredth anniversary of the discovery of america money was also poured out lavishly for various public works until this congress in its two sessions had made itself responsible for an expenditure which exceeded that of any other congress by one hundred and seventy million dollars the total amount of money voted for various purposes was roughly computed at one billion dollars hence the fifty-first congress was generally spoken of as the billion-dollar congress when this name was uttered in the presence of mr speaker reed he remarked casually yes but this is a billion-dollar country 
the saying was very characteristic of the man who now began to play a somewhat spectacular part in national legislation mr thomas b reed was a native of maine who had been a member of congress for twenty-three years he was a very striking figure fully six feet in height of huge girth and impressing the beholder with a sense of great reserve power he was both physically and mentally a giant a keen reasoner alert audacious and absolutely self-possessed his party recognized in him a leader who could neither be outwitted nor outfaced his speech was caustic his wit keen and he took delight in destroying shams sometimes even those shams in which his associates pretended to believe he had a nasal yankee drawl and the eyes which peered out of his large round face twinkled with an irrepressible humour he was now elected speaker of the house and he was counted upon by the republicans to force through some very controversial legislation against a minority which was both large and decidedly pugnacious the measure which threatened to meet with the bitterest opposition was a federal elections bill intended to give the federal government power to supervise congressional elections and if necessary to use military force for the protection of every legal voter this measure was directed against the south where the negro vote had practically been suppressed the fact was perfectly well known the south was unanimous against any interference which would once more tend to restore the negro to political importance over the proposed bill therefore the fight was certain to be acrimonious and protracted it was believed that the minority by making use of filibustering tactics by introducing dilatory motions and by demanding the roll-call upon each of these could wear out the endurance of the majority and thus prevent the passage of the bill by refusing to vote the democrats could under the existing rules prevent a quorum of the house unless practically all the republican members should be present speaker reed and his party friends decided to thwart such obstructions they drew up and adopted a set of rules empowering the speaker to refuse to entertain motions obviously intended to delay the business of the house and also to count a quorum meaning by this that the speaker could direct the clerk of the house to record as present and not voting all members who were actually there and who refused to answer to their names at roll-call it required strong nerves and complete presence of mind to enforce these rules to the letter but mr reed was fully equal to the task the sessions of the house soon resembled pandemonium member after member on the democratic side would rise and make a series of motions shutting out the words at the top of their lungs but the speaker paid no more attention to them than if they had been miles away while he counted his quorums members sought to escape from the hall but found that the doors were locked note twenty four page two hundred then they raged up and down the aisles denouncing the speaker in unmeasured language yelling shrieking and pounding their desks while the republicans added to the din by cheering and whistling with delight passion waxed so hot that even the correspondents in the press gallery shared in it and many of them leaned over the railing shaking their fists at the speaker and pouring forth a torrent of profanity which was quite inaudible amid the uproar through it all mr reed sat tranquilly in his chair serene as a summer morning unheeding the deluge of denunciation which descended on him while he would say slowly in his most exasperating drawl when the excitable gentleman from texas has come to order the chair will rule upon the point these tempestuous sessions continued day after day and under the guidance of czar reed as he was called the federal elections bill ultimately passed the house in the senate however it died a peaceful death 
because there existed in the upper house the right of unlimited debate and an alliance was formed between the democrats and a number of republican senators to prevent the passage of the bill there was as a matter of fact little real desire in the north for its enactment into law that the negro vote was suppressed throughout the southern states was not denied yet most fair-minded men had come to feel that the enfranchisement of the negro had been a political error and no one liked to contemplate even a partial return to the hideous scenes of the reconstruction period when ape-like blacks had leagued themselves with the vilest whites in a repulsive and disgraceful political orgy under the reed rules were passed the dependent pension bill already mentioned a bill for the admission of idaho and wyoming as new states and bills to repeal the bland allison act and to substitute in its place the so-called sherman silver law this last act provided that thereafter the government should purchase every month four million five hundred thousand ounces of silver and issue against this bullion up to its full value legal tender notes redeemable on demand in coin as the genesis and the operation of this new law will be discussed more fully in a subsequent chapter note twenty five page two hundred one it may be passed over here without a special comment the most important legislation of the session was a tariff bill framed by the committee on ways and means of which the chairman was mr william mckinley of ohio the passage of this bill marked a new stage in the development of protective legislation in the united states prior to the civil war the tariff system of the united states had as a whole been primarily devised to produce revenue and only secondarily to protect domestic industries against foreign competition thus the acts of eighteen twenty four of eighteen twenty eight and of eighteen thirty two which represent the high water mark of protective sentiment in antebellum days were at the most intended to give american manufacturers of iron cotton and woollen goods and a few other commodities some temporary assistance until they should have established themselves upon so firm a basis as to stand alone the protectionists of those days were of the old school regarding a high tariff on imported goods only as a means to a definite end and not as an end in itself the infant industry argument was the one which writers and speakers upon the subject most often used and which most appealed to the popular intelligence give us help for a while until our factories are built our machinery installed our business organized and our experience acquired and then we can hold our own against the world this was quite in accordance with the independent individualistic spirit of the native american of the early nineteenth century who asked only for an opportunity to make a fair start and who after that had a sturdy confidence in the sufficiency of his own brain and his own hands by eighteen forty two in fact the country at large had begun to experience a reaction from even so much of protectionism as was embodied in the acts just mentioned to be sure in eighteen forty two a new tariff bill passed by the whigs was professedly a protective measure but its life was short and under president polk the duties were scaled down by the tariff of eighteen forty six to a point where many of the articles about which protectionist writers have the most to say were subjected to an average duty of only thirty per cent these rates were lowered still further by the act of eighteen fifty seven a purely non-political measure and when the civil war broke out the tariff system of the united states represented an approximation to free trade in that it was intended to produce revenue for the needs of the government and not especially to shelter or build up any industries which without protection would be unprofitable agitation on the subject of the tariff had at that time practically ceased both political parties were satisfied to leave things as they were the country had been extraordinarily prosperous manufactures flourished 
and the infant industries which had appeared to require assistance in eighteen thirty two were well past the period of infancy when therefore in eighteen sixty with a view to the coming election the republicans introduced into congress a new tariff bill with a higher scale of duties note twenty six page two hundred three they were rebuked by one of the ablest of their own number mr sherman who declared when mr stanton says the manufacturers are urging and pressing this bill he says what he must certainly know is not correct the manufacturers have asked over and over again to be let alone note twenty seven page two hundred three in fact the instinctive dread of any change whatever which in after years led business men and producers generally to dread a lowering of the tariff operated in eighteen sixty to make them dread an increase in the duties the civil war however brought with it an insistent and incessant demand for money to meet the drain upon the treasury every species of taxation that could be devised by the harris chase was legalized by congress when at last the expenses of the government had risen to something like three million dollars a day there came a climax to the financial agony in the passing of measures of taxation direct and indirect more sweeping than any modern people had ever known incomes were taxed the excise imposts grew heavier and heavier checks notes drafts wills deeds mortgages business agreements insurance policies and almost every form of legal document were valid only after they had paid their tribute in the form of revenue stamps the barest necessities of life even medicines salt and matches yielded great sums to the tax-gatherer specific or ad valorem duties were heaped upon a vast number of products and manufactures transportation by rail or boat was taxed and so was the business of the telegraphs and of the express companies a multitude of ordinary callings had to pay heavy license fees more than this not only were the manufacturers subjected to a general tax but at each stage of production a separate tax was levied on every article first while it existed only as raw material and then again when it had been turned out as a finished product nothing escaped the eye of the inquisitor many persons ruefully recalled the pungent words in which sidney smith had depicted the miseries of tax-ridden england at the close of the napoleonic wars note twenty eight pages two hundred four and five it was the manufacturers who suffered most and in order that they might not be absolutely ruined some compensatory legislation was needed in their interest i shear my sheep i do not flay them said the emperor tiberius on one occasion and in the same spirit the financiers at washington sought to preserve the manufacturing industry from extinction so that they might continue to be a source of revenue if we bleed manufacturers said mr morrill of vermont in eighteen sixty two we must see to it that the proper tonic is administered at the same time the tonic was administered in the shape of a high tariff on imported manufactures this largely shut out foreign competition and so gave to the american producers a monopoly of the home market as a compensation for the heavy burdens which they were bearing in time of war the measure was understood to be distinctly a war measure it was avowedly a temporary arrangement a part of the whole abnormal exceptional legislation which congress enacted in order to meet an extraordinary crisis in the struggle for national existence its advocates never dreamed that it was to be perpetuated any more than the tax upon the telegraph or the license to carry on an ordinary business after the war had ended nearly all these unprecedented expedients for wringing money from the people were speedily abandoned the floating debt was funded stability and order brought renewed prosperity 
and when the need of maintaining half a million men in arms ceased to exist congress repealed tax after tax at last every one of the exceptional burdens from which the manufacturers had suffered was removed logically then the protective duties which had been imposed to enable them to bear those burdens should also have been abolished this however was not done leading republican statesmen even those who were protectionists admitted that the high duties were no longer necessary and therefore that they were no longer just note twenty nine page two hundred six many attempts were made to remove or modify them as in the abortive measure of eighteen sixty seven which had a majority in both houses of congress but which failed to pass because owing to a technicality of parliamentary law a two-thirds vote was needed to bring it before the house as an amendment gradually the long delay in lowering the duties produced a singular effect upon the public mind the special circumstances under which the duties had originally been levied were forgotten they ceased to be regarded as a war tax but were rather viewed by many as an integral and normal part of our financial system moreover the manufacturers who were heaping up fortunes through the continuance of the war tariff exerted all the power which great wealth afforded of creating a sentiment in their behalf liberal gifts to the campaign fund of the republican party were rewarded by legislative favors but the tariff issue was not strictly a party one there were high-tariff democrats as well as low-tariff republicans for instance mr samuel j randall who was long a democratic leader in the house and who twice served as speaker was as thorough-going a protectionist as pig-iron kelly himself and in fact in some of his canvasses for re-election the republicans in his district set up no candidate to oppose him protection sentiment in a word was strong in the states where protected manufacturers flourished and weakened the agricultural states which received nothing from the tariff except an increase in the cost of living when general hancock in eighteen eighty said the tariff is a local issue the remark was received with a shout of derision but in the sense in which he meant it it was profoundly true in the course of time the agricultural communities of the west began to get an inkling of the truth and to perceive how preposterous it was to protect industries which had without protection successfully maintained themselves against foreign competition before the war various popular movements such as the farmers alliance grangerism and the like note thirty page two hundred seven made the republican managers uneasy several revisions of the tariff were undertaken ostensibly in the direction of lower duties the act of eighteen seventy two was one of these attempts but it was so artfully framed as in fact to leave things very much as they had been before in eighteen eighty three a general revision of duties actually raised many of them as for example those on woollen dress goods iron ore and steel nevertheless economic causes were at work which were distinctly unfavourable to a perpetuation of high protectionism as a policy chief among these causes as has been seen was the increasing surplus in the treasury every republican president from grant to arthur had called the attention of congress to this and had specifically recommended lower rates of duty it is likely that had the republican party remained in power these recommendations would have been ultimately carried out it was the election of mr cleveland in eighteen eighty four and his attitude toward the tariff which solidified the republicans not merely in support of the old war rates but of an extension of these rates to new classes of imported goods when mr cleveland made a distinct issue of lowering the tariff his opponents from sheer necessity were driven to take the other side they ignored the whole history of protection in the united states they put aside the utterances of their own leaders in the past 
in the end they went even further than they had probably intended until at last they flatly declared that protection so far from being a temporary measure was one to be perpetuated for its own sake and that duties instead of being lowered should be made even higher than they had been under the actual stress of war the campaign of eighteen eighty eight had practically been fought out over this issue and since the republicans were successful they felt that the country had given them a mandate to do whatever they saw fit it was with this conviction that the act of eighteen ninety popularly known as the mckinley bill was framed by the republican members of the house committee and ultimately reported by the chairman mr mckinley from this time dates the new protectionism which proclaimed the doctrine that high duties and high prices are a distinct advantage to the country its framers intended to reduce the surplus in the treasury by enacting tariff schedules that were prohibitive the mckinley bill was a very radical measure it raised the duties on a great number of articles and it removed from the free list a great many others unlike the earlier acts it laid imposts upon commodities which are used in every household articles of clothing carpets table linen thread tools and also upon many kinds of food the effect of this was certain to be felt at once throughout the entire country in the shape of a direct rise in prices some of the republicans themselves had an uncomfortable feeling that the measure was eminently unwise such was emphatically the view of mr blaine himself an old-time protectionist and one who remained unconverted to the doctrines of mr mckinley mr blaine saw that the new tariff bill would not only prove unpopular with the country but that it would shut out american trade from the most desirable foreign markets there is not a section or a line in the entire bill he wrote to senator fry that will open a market for another bushel of wheat or another barrel of pork he even appeared before the committees of congress to urge them with all his influence a wiser policy mr blaine was the shrewdest of politicians he knew the value of a taking catchword what he wanted to secure was the admission of foreign goods untaxed from such countries as would admit american products of certain classes free of duty this was in reality a species of free trade but he artfully described it as reciprocity a word which would not alarm the timid voter who had been taught that free trade spelled ruin day after day the secretary of state labored with his party associates to introduce the principle of reciprocity into the pending bill every stage of its passage was watched by him with intense interest and he wrote to mr mckinley many pointed notes of which the following is typical washington april tenth eighteen ninety dear mr mckinley it is a great mistake to take hides from the free list where they have been for so many years it is a slap in the face to the south americans with whom we are trying to enlarge our trade it will benefit the farmer by adding five to eight per cent to the price of his children's shoes it will yield a profit to the butcher only the last man that needs it the movement is injudicious from beginning to end in every form and phase pray stop it before it sees light such movements as this for protection will protect the republican party into a speedy retirement very hastily james g blaine note thirty one page two ten mr blaine had small success with the members of the house of representatives the mckinley following had gone mad over high protective duties they acted as though whatever they did there would be no day of reckoning they placed duties upon the sheer necessities of life they sought artificially to stimulate the production in this country of commodities such as tin plate that had never before been produced in the united states they were not forgetful of the fact that the protected manufacturers had furnished the great campaign fund which had carried indiana for mr harrison 
remembering that mr cleveland like his republican predecessors had urged the remission of duties on raw materials mr mckinley removed one such duty this however was the duty on raw sugar and its abolition meant millions of profit to the great sugar trust which was beginning to be extremely powerful in washington the folly of such a course was pointed out by mr blaine note thirty two page two eleven who hammered away by argument exhortation and published letters in behalf of reciprocity before the senate committee he made a speech so energetic and so full of passion that the reports of it in an imperfect form went all over the country in his vehemence mr blaine pounded the desk on which lay a draft of the proposed bill and in doing so he smashed his tall hat under his descending fist note thirty three page two eleven this appealed to the people's sense of the picturesque blaine has smashed his hat on the mckinley bill was the sentence that went from mouth to mouth and this trivial incident attracted more attention to the measure than the whole columns of printed speeches at last the senate proved somewhat more open to reason than the house had been and an element of reciprocity in a negative form was introduced into the bill by a senate amendment rather ungraciously worded which authorized the president to impose duties on certain free goods whenever the country from which they came imposed duties that were reciprocally unequal and unreasonable upon certain specified american exports End of chapter five part two